Hey, good morning, everybody. Grab a seat, preferably your own. And uh, if you have a Bible, you can open up to Genesis chapter 11. We're in a kind of a mini series that we're almost at the end of where we've been studying the first 12 chapters of Genesis. And today we're in a story that if you've never read it before, I'm sure you've heard about it uh, or you've heard the name. We're studying the story of this group of people that came together to build a city and to build a tower. And the tower was called the Tower of... Y'all know that. It's a weird story, all right? And God comes in and does something that he had never done before in history and has never done since. He comes in and he confuses their language and literally uh, scatters them. So when I was 10 years old, what I wanted for my birthday was a BB gun. And I got to tell you, man, I wanted it so bad. And I don't know why, I just wanted it. I grew up in the South. And um, so my parents gave me one. And when I opened it up, I got this lecture from my dad about what I could do with it, what I couldn't do with it, how to be careful with it. And if you're not careful, you're going to... Yeah, you're going to shoot your eye out. <laughs> I don't think he said that, but let's say he did, all right? Uh, and so I played all day with that BB gun. And as the sun started to go down, you know, I was 10 years old and I'm crawling through the bushes in my backyard and I'm pretending to be some kind of hero and I'm getting hungry and I decide, okay, it's time to go in for dinner. I've done this long enough, but before I go, I'm going to pull the trigger. Not knowing that the end of my gun was pointed straight at the sliding glass door on the back of our house. When it hit the door, it didn't make a little hole. For some reason, it like spider webbed the entire sliding glass door. And these are the words that came out of my mouth. Can you guess? Don't, don't. You're in church. You can't say that. I was 10 years old. Come on, what kind of kid do you think I was? I said, my dad is going to kill me. And let me tell you, I grew up in a home where I wasn't just, that wasn't joking. I thought my dad is literally going to kill me. At the least, he's going to take away my BB gun. But I think because, and for this passage is going to be hard for some of you that grew up in a home where, where punishment is what you experienced instead of discipline. And you know what I mean by punishment is that that when you did something wrong, it's kind of like if you do the crime, you do the time. Like if you do something that your parents didn't approve of or a parent didn't approve of, then you had to suffer the consequences of what you had done. And those consequences were created to be so painful that it made you think, you'll think again before you do this. You'll think twice before you do this again. But it wasn't just the punishment. It was also this sense of, of I've earned my parents' displeasure. I've, I've done something so egregious that now I'm somehow set apart from the rest of the family and I'm sent to my room to be by myself. It's almost like now I have forfeited belonging and loving. And it wasn't just now I'm being disciplined for what I did. I'm being punished. And what I'm being punished with emotionally is separation and doubt now whether or not I belong here and whether or not I'm loved. Some of you have experienced that. I've experienced that. See, discipline is very different. 
Because discipline is coming into a hard situation with the purpose of loving someone, of maturing them, of guiding them, not isolating them and put at stake belonging and loving. That's not what discipline does. Discipline comes in with belonging and loving and wraps itself around us and teaches us how to grow and mature, even though discipline is hard. I mean, think about this. If you've ever had a kid that has gone trick-or-treating, uh, or if you've ever been a kid, some of you haven't, um, and you, you, know, you come in from trick-or-treating and you dump all your candy out in the living room and you're looking at it, and, and you've got that look in your eye that says, I'm going to eat every bit of this candy before I go to bed. And then mom leans in and goes, and you, you hope that's not what it means, what you think it means, which is, she goes, you can have two pieces of candy and the rest goes back in the bag. And you're like, you are a monster. <laughs> like, she's loving right now because she knows you could try to eat your way through that candy and it's going to be horrible for you. So my discipline isn't just to get you to do what I want. The discipline is to show you love and to teach you how to guard yourself against those desires that are going to lead you to places that you don't want to go. Trust me. And so when we read this passage, we're about to read, this is the biggest setup ever in the history of sermons, all right? We're about to read this. If all you ever knew was punishment, be careful. Because what we're about to read is about discipline. It's, a, it's about a loving God that's moving with love toward people, but on the outside, it doesn't look loving. And to them, it doesn't feel loving, but it is. Okay, you ready? Did I set that up okay? Should I just pray and let's come to the table? No, Molly, come and read us the story. Are you reading for us today? Who else? Who is there? Somebody else that's reading? The voice of God. Keaton. See, <laughs> so y'all know that Keaton never tells it. You're up front, bro. Up front. No, you cannot hide behind these tables. They don't tell me when he's reading anymore because I love it so much. I get excited. All right. You have never heard Genesis 11 like you're about to hear it. All right. Genesis 11. What verse are we starting in? One. Yes, we are. <laughs> yes. Go. I, I'm so ready. <laughs> now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Thank you, Keaton. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your goodness. That your discipline in love leads us to life. And we need help, Lord, this morning because um, we don't like discipline. And we certainly don't like um, to be uh, guided in love away from what we love. And we need your help. And I pray that you would give us moments of vulnerability this morning in our own hearts 
and a willingness to be convicted by your spirit and the capacity to open our hands in faith and receive your grace. In Christ's name, amen. So obviously something happened in this passage that God is scattering them and confusing their languages. So let's kind of dig in. Let's find out what's, what happened here and where's the love in this. So starting in verse 1, it says, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as people migrated from the east, so these people were nomads and they were migrating across open country to the east. They found a plain in the land of Shinar and they settled there. So all these tribes that spoke one tongue are all coming together in this area that they called Shinar. And they decided they're going to build a city there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had bricks for stone. They had bricks for stone and bitumen for mortar. So they've come together to build a city. People who didn't have a city now we're building a city. What's the big deal? I mean, think about it. Cities are great. Cities are a place of security. They're a place of unity. Uh, I mean, they really are a place of belonging. Like, this is a great thing that's happening here. I mean, think about belonging for you. Like, have you ever, uh, like, traveled outside of Nashville and you see somebody wearing a Titans jersey and you're just tempted to go up to them and go, yeah, tighten up, you know? <laughs> I was in Amsterdam and uh, the airport there and I saw somebody walk by with a Nashville t-shirt on and I just wanted to run up to him and give him a high five, like, I'm one of you, like I belong to you, like we're together. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with Shinar having its own t-shirt? I mean, that just seems like a great thing, and in the middle of this belonging that they're all coming together and being collective in their belongingness of building this city, they came up with new technology. I mean, it's amazing. They, they discovered how to cook bricks and make bricks like, like stone, but now they can make their own stone in the shape that they wanted it in. This was amazing technology, and then they used this uh, bitumen, which is a kind of a tar substance to connect them together. And just as a side note, remember, Moses wrote this. Inspired by God, he wrote this. And who were the first readers of this were the Israelites who were out in the desert. They'd just come out of slavery. And what did they do in slavery? They spent their whole lives making bricks. And so Moses is going, this is where it all started, all the way back here. But this technology, what's wrong with technology? I mean, some of you are techies, and you could tell me a lot of things that are wrong with technology. I grew up in the time where there was no technology, and I love technology. <clears throat> in fact, let me take you back. I grew up in a time where, this is gonna shock you, if you wanted to know if somebody was home, you had to go to this, this big thing in front of their house called their door, and you had to knock on it. Like, think about how crazy that is, because when somebody knocks on your door at your house now, do you panic a little bit? Like, because if that's not UPS, that's somebody trying to sell me something because my friends don't do that. I lived in a time where, have you ever heard of rock, paper, scissors? Y'all have. None of y'all get out, do you? Like, y'all are a sad group of people. Like, I remember sitting on the couch and we'd be watching TV and we wanted to change the channel and my brothers, we'd all play rock, paper, and scissors to see who had to get up from the couch and go change the channel. Shocking. 
I love technology. And here's this community that's built around this new technology. They're building a city where they belong. They're building a city that has unity to it. They're building a city that they all are participating with it. And who doesn't want to belong? I want to belong. I mean, God made us to want to belong. Well, let's keep going. I also want to be loved. In fact, it is one of the thumbprints that God has put on my soul that I want to be loved. I need to be loved. I have to be loved. It's a part of a hunger within me, and so do you. And it says, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. What is that? Let us make a name for ourselves. Well, I don't have to talk about it too long, because you all know what that means. Is there like, let's do something that the whole world is going to know we did that. <clears throat> and why do they want the whole world to know that they did that? Because they want the whole world to go, wow. And you know what that feels a lot like? Being loved. Because what does somebody do when they're in love with you? They look at you and they go, wow. And that's what they were looking for. Like, they're going to admire us. They're going to respect us. We're going to be loved. Like, yesterday, me and one of my best friends, we went to the tap room over on 12 South to eat lunch, uh, which was a huge mistake on a Saturday <laughs> And we sat down, I've eaten there a thousand times, you know, we know all the people that work there. I sat down and our waitress came over and sat down at the table with us and she goes, thank Jesus. And I'm like, really? Wow. Uh, no, she didn't say that, all right? She sat down and she goes, I really am so thankful to be serving two people lunch that aren't dressed like Taylor Swift. <laughs> My friend said, well, we can go change. Like we, they were everywhere, like from like, like just little bitty kids all the way up to their big mamas. Like they were all dressed like it was like Swift just vomited on 12 South and that's what came out. Everybody knows her. They know her music. Do you think she goes to bed at night going, I am so deeply loved? Do you think there's ever a day in her life where she ever questions whether or not she's loved? Well, we all, because we're in church, we have to be somewhat sane. We go... Uh, no, I think it's possible that she doesn't feel loved at all, even though she's the most known, possibly admired, maybe even respected. <clears throat> a lot of people spend a lot of money on her woman in the city right now. But we all love a name. I mean, who doesn't want a good reputation? Who doesn't want their lives to be a tower that when other people see it, they're not stepping back and going, wow, wow, that's amazing. I mean, think about it. Do you know what it feels like when people uh, are upset with you? When people aren't in wow of you? We so want to belong. We so want to be loved. Do you know that there are people that have left this community because they felt there were people in this community that didn't like them? Let me take it a step further. There have been people that have left our community because they just believed there were people in this community that didn't like them, even though it wasn't true. Even just the smell and the hint that that could possibly be true causes some people to run because we so deeply want to belong and we so deeply want to be loved. And that's what's happening right here. So what's the big deal? Okay, for us to get into that, we've got to go back a little bit, all right? 
So if you're, if you're in Genesis chapter 11, that means there's only 10 chapters before that. So there's not a long ways to go back. <clears throat> only about that much, all right? So if you go back to chapter 4, we hear the story of Cain and Abel, their brothers, they're the first brothers. They don't get along. Cain takes out his anger on his brother Abel and kills him. And God comes and confronts Cain. And, uh, and in confronting him and convicting him of his crime, he curses him. And the curse is that you are going to wander the earth as a wanderer the rest of your life. Um, three verses later, what do we find? We find that Cain is building a city. <clears throat> Wait a minute. What? He had a son named Enoch, and they named the city after his son, Enochville, or whatever. I don't know. But <clears throat> do you see what's happening is, see, when God, when God made us, well, that's not bad. All right. <clears throat> when God made us, what he, how he made us is for him to be the center of our lives. And what I mean by that is that he is the source of all my hope. He is the source of all my joy. He is the source of all my power. He's the source of my riches. He's the source of my life. He's actually the source. Get this. Wow, this, this would be a great deep dive for any of you that don't know what I'm talking about. He's the source of my identity and my life and my purpose and everything that I want for my life. He is the source of my belonging and my loving. That's the thumbprint God put in me for him to fill. And what is Cain doing? I'll do it. <clears throat> Let's keep going. Because <clears throat> in chapter 9, Noah comes off the boat with his family. He's got some boys. One of them is Ham. Ham ain't such a great guy. And something happened between Ham when Noah got drunk. Go read it. It's crazy. All right? Uh, but he gets all liquored up and something happens that the Bible can't even mention. It's so horrible. But Noah literally curses his son Ham. And so Ham leaves the family because of what he has done now. And out of the line of Ham, we got Egypt, we got Canaan. We even have Babylon, Babel. And one of Ham's sons is a guy named Nimrod. <laughs> come on, seriously. You got to laugh. I mean, come on. That word in Hebrew literally means he will rebel. Think of the mother that named that child. I mean, seriously. It's like naming your kid a rotten kid. But Nimrod is believed to have found the city of Babel. And what are we seeing? We're seeing generational sins of what? Building cities. And building cities for what? For me. By the power of what? The power of me. <clears throat> for the purpose of me. In fact, what we're seeing is, is that the longing for belonging and the longing for love, I'll now take care of it instead of God. Scripture calls that pride. It calls it pride. And God knows something about pride that we don't know about pride. What God knows about pride is pride is the cancer that destroys our lives. For the very purpose that we were made is now chewed away by the cancer of pride. Pride isn't a bad habit. It's actually the root of all sin. Pride is the source of all sin, the foundation of all sin, the power of all sin. It's the soil that it grows in. 
Pride is breaking the first commandment. Thou shalt have no other God before me. Pride is saying, yes, I will, and it'll be me. I'll be the God now to decide what's, what's good for me, what's not good for me. I'll decide how I'm going to get belonging, and I'm going to decide how I'm going to get love. C.S. Lewis said, For pride is spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love, or contentment, or even common sense. He goes on to say that, well, now we've come to the center. According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the most evil is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites. We don't use that word very often, do we? Flea bites. But they're mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil, and pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Anti-God state of mind. Pride is the void of all faith. Pride is the, what am I going to do with my life? Kind of statement. Pride is, don't you see what I've done with my life? Statement. Pride is also the heart of all my shame. Because when I look in the mirror and I don't like what I look, what I'm saying, my pride is saying, I should look better. Or if I got shame about my failures, it's because I believe I should be the kind of person that never fails. Me, 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 me. It's the root of greed. It's the root of lust. It's the root of hatred. Even acts of unbelievable charity are often rooted in pride. You know what I mean? It's the you for me. Watch what I'm going to do for you. Really for me. Watch, I'm going to ring the bell of my charity to the world Look how much I give to others to me. And God hates pride. Let me tell you, all throughout the Bible, God stands opposed to pride. In Proverbs chapter 16, it says, first pride, then the crash. The bigger the ego, the harder the fall. It also says earlier in that same chapter, God can't stomach arrogance or pretense. It goes on to say in Proverbs 26, do you see a person who's wise in their own eyes? There's more hope than for a fool than for them. In 1 Peter chapter 5, in verse 5, it says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourself, all of you, with humility toward one another. Why? God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Matthew 23, The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And pride is at the heart of every sin. Remember discipline and punishment. When God says he hates pride, remember, just be careful here, okay? And God moves toward my pride. He is coming to me toward, toward me in love. Not this punitive, I'm going to make you pay. Okay? So in love... Let's remember, pride declares, I don't need God. Pride declares, I can do it on my own. Pride says, I can shape God in my own desires rather than shaping my desires around who God truly is. So, you prideful? Let's just have group participation now. All right? Like, you know, you may be thinking, eh, yeah. I mean, it would probably be prideful to say I'm really humble. All right. So I'd never say that in church, but I'm kind of proud of how humble I am. You know, I mean, are you prideful? Like, 
And would you say that your pride is at the point to where God needs to deal with it? Or is it kind of a flea bite? Like, eh, I don't know. I mean, you know. Well, let me take you to the test. All right, you ready? Get a drink of water. Let me tell you why this is a hard sermon to preach. It, it, is, uh, it is a scary thing when God doesn't love the things that I love. If God loves me so much that he's actually willing to move toward me against the things that I actually love, I, I don't know about you, but that scares me a little bit. That God cares more about me than he cares about my house. He cares more about me than he cares about my health. He cares more about me than he cares about my job. Like, he could actually do this midtown, midtown thing without me? Like, are you kidding me? That kind of love scares me. I don't know if I need to talk about that, but let's get into it because uh, God knows something we don't know. Your pride is killing you. And what, you know what it's killing? It's not killing Christ in you. Nothing can do that. Nothing can take away Christ in you. What it's killing is your ability to grasp the identity of who you are. It's killing the power in which he's given you to live in the power of being one who is now filled with the Holy Spirit. Pride is preventing you. Like Paul says in Ephesians, it has blinded your eyes. And he's praying that your eyes would be open, that you would see the riches, the hope, and get this, the power that is yours in Jesus Christ. The enemy loves you to be consumed with pride because it's keeping you from opening your eyes to what you have because if you saw what you had, you may actually live with it and in it, and through it. So, Jacqueline Crow Ferris, she, uh, I love her writing. She mainly writes for teens. That's probably why I love it. That's, you know, my maturity level. And, <laughs> but we're going to completely steal from her. She goes, she says, the seven marks of a prideful person, or the seven marks of pride in every person, maybe is a better way to say it. So I'm going to give you a little test and let's see where you fall out, okay? What does pride look like in your life? The first thing she says, you ready? Hang on. Fear. What? If you struggle with fear in your life, it may be that that fear is rooted in pride. Because pride's at the root of fear and anxiety when we refuse to humbly rest in God's sovereignty for me. See, when we understand that most fear is about a future that doesn't exist, that we create this future that creates fear for us. And why are we afraid? Because we're creating scenarios, uh, things that could happen, all kinds of stuff in the future. And we're looking in the mirror and we're going, do I have what it takes to face that? And you're going, no. And what is that? That's me at the center of that equation. Do I have what it takes to face that future? What if I lose my job? What am I going to do? What if that person leaves me? What am I going to do? What if I can't find a roommate? What am I going to do? Like all that fear that's wrapped up in my anxiety about the future completely removes God from the equation. When I remove pride from the equation, now I can look at God and go, I belong to you. What are you going to do? We'll talk about that later. But fear. Like, you know, Tito last week, you know, Tito talked about uh, Peter walking on the water. 
And what happened when he was walking on the water? As long as he's looking at Jesus, that Jesus was enough, he was able to do what no man before him could ever do, which is our lives. If we're walking in the Spirit, we're actually able to do things that are only Spirit-powered. But when he started looking around the waves, here's what came to his mind. I'm just a man. I can't do this. Fear. And he became afraid because he assessed the situation. And then he assessed himself and he goes, I'm not enough. That's pride. I'm at the center of the equation, not God. So fear. Do you have fear? You want to keep going? There's six more. Thank you, Jack. Well, entitlement. We think we deserve God's mercy and we think we deserve people's praise. We think we deserve love, success, comfort, accolades. And some of you are like, I don't think I'm that prideful. Let me give you the flip side of that same coin. You don't think you deserve suffering and you don't think you deserve heartbreak and you certainly don't believe you deserve the discomfort of God's discipline in your life. And how do I know that? When you face suffering and struggles, what comes out of your mouth? Something is wrong. I shouldn't have to suffer like this. In fact, I work hard to give my life so much comfort and so much security that I will never suffer. That's me. Three, we're going to run out of time. Ingratitude. Ingratitude. Our proud hearts say that we're good. That we should get what we want. And if we don't, that we're justified in our ingratitude. That gratitude to God is just not rolling off my tongue. What I got, I got. What I did, I did. Number four. This one's going to hit uh, close to home for some of you. People-pleasing. People-pleasing is all about self-satisfaction. Fearing man more than God and seeking the fleeting happiness that comes from man's approval. Some of you here, you've not yet learned that one word that will set you free. And it's no. You can't say no to anybody or anything or any situation. You're the doormat for your entire family because you exist to make sure everybody else is happy with you. If you could just keep everybody pleased then you'll be pleased. At the heart of that is pride. At the heart of that is you. At the heart of that is unwillingness to let other people suffer, rightfully so, because you said no. Number five, and this one, this one's kind of a chin punch, I think. It's prayerlessness. Pride deceives us into thinking that we can do life on our own. That we're capable, independent, unstoppable, self-reliant. We think that we don't need God every hour. That we don't need his help, his grace, his mercy, his courage, and his hope. And surely, we don't need to pray. Like, if prayer for you is a discipline that you've tried for years to get into your life, it's like, man, I've got to get up early in the morning. I'm going to set my alarm. I'm going to try. I'm, I'm going to discipline myself. I'm going to quit eating cake, and I'm going to pray. You watch. Today's a new day. <clears throat> Do you know what's crazy about that? Is you have no understanding about what prayer really is. Prayer is the groan of our souls that is dependent upon God to give me every breath of my life. 
The life I'm living is not my life. The life is your life. And prayer is not me constantly asking you stuff. Prayer is me listening and being in communion with you because you're the one that's in charge of this life that you've given me, not me. Oh, I tell you, my pride never needs to pray. I'm too busy to pray. I'm too busy running my life, getting things done, taking care of people's problems, being a pleaser, getting everything out the door before the end of the day. God, I don't have time for you right now. Oh my goodness. Think of the pride of that. Me, 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 me. Number six, hypocrisy. You think you're better than everyone else because you easily find fault in others. And here's the crazy thing about hypocrisy. The thing I spot the most is the thing that I struggle with the most. I got to tell you, I have a pet peeve. When I come up to a red light and I'm in a long line and I'm calculating, am I going to get through with the next light? I'm secretly going, everybody get off your phone. Because when that light changes, we're all going. Come on, let's move it. And inevitably, somebody stops and just they're on their phone, they're checking their texts, they're doing something, and the whole line stops. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, I have to sit through another light? Another light? Do you not know that I live in Green Hills? I suffer. Like, I... <laughs> Here's the funny thing. When I'm the one holding up the line, it's funny. When I'm checking my text and I look up and everybody's gone and I'm still sitting there and everybody behind me is like, I'm like, come on, guys, lighten up, lighten up. <laughs> Hilarious, I never do this, come on. It's hypocrisy. And the last one is rebellion. And it's, if you're rebellious against God, if you're rebellious against his word, if you're saying to God, I love your word when it talks about grace, but when you talk about other things, I have to rewrite it, I have to reshape it. That's pride. So we're about to come to this table because what hope is there for us? Because you're a prideful person. I'm a prideful person. And God is moving toward us to rescue us from our pride. He's trying to set us free from the prison of living our lives, not with him, but just with ourselves. He's trying to rescue us from this life of actually believing that we can get the life of belonging and love that our hearts so deeply long for by putting me at the center of the equation and not God. Well, let me tell you what we're about to do. If you're a Christian today, I want you to know something. Who's on the throne of your life? He is. Jesus is on the throne of your life. I don't care how prideful you are. If you belong to him, he's on the throne of your life and he ain't giving it up. He's never going to get it up. Matter of fact, he promises he's never going to let you go. Never going to let you go. He even promises that the Holy Spirit, like the Holy Spirit, like the third member of the Trinity, has dedicated his entire energy and life to finishing what he started in you. And that means the Holy Spirit is moving towards you. And every time that I put me in this equation, Jesus is going, eh. I'm going to move towards you because I'm going to convict you of sin, maybe like he's doing right now. And he says, what do we do with that conviction? Holy Spirit, I'm, I'm so prideful and pride has kept me <clears throat> from the full life of being a follower of Jesus Christ. 
Christianity has become boring to me. It's become empty to me. There's no power on Sunday morning to me. Why? Because I'm so prideful that I have forfeited the grace that God wants to pour out on me in my life. I have fought against Jesus. And Jesus comes with his Holy Spirit to convict us of sin. And what does he call us to? Repentance. See, repentance is not, I'm getting fresh forgiveness. Because Jesus went to the cross and he paid for all my pride. He who knew no sin, he became all my pride and all your pride. He took it all to the cross. And when he paid that penalty there and then rose again, we rose with him to newness of life. And my sins are gone. They're as far as the east is from the west. They're gone. They're never coming back. All your future sins, all your past sins, all your present sins, they're dealt with by Jesus. What does repentance do? Repentance opens my eyes and brings me back to sanity. C.S. Lewis said, fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He's a rebel who must lay down his arms. The process of surrender is what Christians call repentance. Now, repentance is no fun at all. It's sometimes much harder than merely eating humble pie. It means killing part of yourself and undergoing a kind of death. And in 1 Peter chapter 5, it says, humble yourself. Therefore, under God's mighty hand, and he will lift you up. So the only cure for your pride is the work of Christ on the cross and us coming in repentance and saying, Lord, have your way with me and letting him deal with what he's convicting you of right now. In the city of Babel, the Lord cared more about pride not controlling their lives. He said, nothing will be impossible for them. He was talking about their pride will know no end, but we're going to stop it here and begin to deal with man and call them back to me. I hope that's what he's doing with you today. So the way we do that here at Midtown is the band's going to come back in in just a moment and they're going to lead us in worship. This communion table, this sacrament was instituted by Jesus on the night before he was betrayed and arrested and went to the cross. And he took the bread and he looked at his disciples and he broke it and he says, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. It's important. Remembrance of me. Then he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of my covenant, the blood for the remission of sins. Every time you drink of this, do this in remembrance of me. So he took the bread and he took the cup and he said, do this in remembrance of me. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it says, also proclaim this over your life. We're coming to remember, to repent, and then to proclaim that we have been set free. That's what we're doing at this table. And this table has a warning to it. It says, search your heart, examine your heart, One, if you're not a Christian, don't come to this table. This is for those that need Jesus. Um, But it also says if you do know Jesus, but there is pride in your heart that you're unwilling to give to the Lord, stay where you are and deal with that before you come to this table. Because when you come to this table, what you're saying to Jesus is, fight against me for me. And Jesus says, be careful. When you say, Jesus, have your way with me, except for that area, Jesus doesn't respect that. Because he loves you too much. So in gentleness, deal with your own heart. Um, When you come, music starts, come on up whenever you're ready. When you get here uh, and you're ready for us to serve you, put your hands out and we'll serve you communion. 
If you want grape juice, if you need that, it's in the center of the serving tray. Wine on the outer realms of the serving tray. If you get here and you need somebody to pray for you, to enter into your story, just cross your chest. They will stop serving and stop and pray for you because that's important to us. So when you're ready, please come. Lord, thank you that you love us so much that you would come and fight against our own pride to bring us into the fullness of who we are in you and fight for our true identity and our true source of belonging and our true source of being loved. Lord, would you lead us now at this table? Would you meet us here at this table? Would you bless these elements of this sacrament for your glory and for our good? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.